Eastern Mediterranean or the Middle East, however you want to call it, it's a combination of very clean ingredients with a lot of flavor. The, the fact that it's a vegetarian, vegan cuisine is very appealing. So you can bring a lot of umami, a lot of depth, a lot of savory to a, a vegetable or a fruit. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Lior Lev Surkars is a chef, spice blender, and owner of La Boite, a world-renowned spice shop located in New York City. On this episode, I catch up with Lior about his unique path from Israel to some of the most famous restaurants in New York City. We talk about the culinary school he's founding in northern Israel and dive into his incredible new book, A Middle Eastern Pantry. For real, this is one of my favorite books of the year, and we go over so many spices and condiments that shape this amazing culinary history. Lior is a true one of one, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Lior Lev Sirkars, welcome to This Is Taste. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to see you. It's great to see you too. Fine, gentlemen. I, I feel like I've been in your orbit. You've been in my orbit for 15 years. <laughs> and we're finally having a real conversation with microphones in our face. Finally. Um, can I say some nice things about your book? Thank you. Please. It's just a Middle Eastern pantry is, to me, a defining work. It's What you're doing is very hard. You're, you're defining not just the spices, but the syrups and the... Um, you know, the condiments, all the ingredients that we hear about in food media, we write about in food media from the Middle East, and and that's a general term, and we'll get to your definition of that. But you do it in a way that's it's not boring, and that's hard to do in a pantry book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was really, I mean, I'm a big fan of pantry, not necessarily the Middle Eastern. I think the notion of having a pantry, I don't know if it's a disappeared, but who has a pantry? in their homes. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of, yeah. of pantry items. Um, they make my cooking really easy. And then obviously being from the Middle East and passionate with the, the culture and the art form of still pickling, fermenting, drying, in a sense to capture the ingredient at its peak. Yeah. So it's, it's not an afterthought, it's on purpose, which, you know, I think, and I really want to highlight the people behind the food, the growers, the makers, yeah. the farmers, the traders. Uh, in a very unique way, and it says it at the beginning of the book at some point, that we're highlighting or we're bringing my interpretation of the region. It's by no mean 100% copy of the recipes, the way they're done originally. And it's how somebody in the U.S., North America, or around the world could bring these ingredients into their homes with their food. Okay. We we know you from Le Bois, which is um, a spice and a retailer, wholesaler to many of the finest restaurants in our country. But um, so you have this background in spice and you've written books about spice, but you're expanding it even beyond. You're, you're talking about all the products in the pantry. I want to ask you first, how do you define the Middle East? It's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky topic. I feel like, um, it's not easy to make, like draw a map, but how do you define it? So, it was an interesting challenge when we started working on the book with Emily Stevenson that, that wrote the book with me and is an incredible writer. Um, it is a political uh, definition more so than geographical. Egypt being part of the mix doesn't really make sense. It's in Africa. Um, it was defined in the early 1900s by you know the British that occupied the region and kind of probably were the first to put that name Middle East 
uh, on that. Uh, I was super excited about this because I can throw Egypt into the mix and then we'll go all the way to Iraq and Iran mm -hmm. and even Yemenite influences, which again, one could argue. So that's kind of how we defined it. We looked at the uh, political map of it without getting into politics, just kind of yeah. what countries were part of it. In some cases, there was not a whole lot to talk about in terms of ingredients or recipes. Uh, and in some cases, there was too much to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think that if there's even, ever a uh, volume two, <laughs> yeah. might need to be dedicated to Persian cuisine and Iraqi and Turkish and Lebanese yeah. because each of these countries deserve a book on their own. And they all have great books too. And I think what makes your book so special is that it's, you're able to like finesse through these geographical territories without being reductive, without being basic. And there's wonderful recipes. I'm going to back up and, and, and go back to your history. You worked at Daniel in the early 20s. Or Correct. Dan Danielle, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I love I love how they call it like a like a Texas banker, like Daniel. Well, most people are like, oh, you were Daniels. I was like, <laughs> Plural. it's Danielle. <laughs> it's Danielle. So, but you worked there in the early 2000s and in an amazing time at that restaurant. What was that like? I came, I was in France for five years. I went to culinary school in the Paul Bocuse Institute, stayed three more years working and decided that I did not want to have anything to do with France or French people and anybody from Lyon. And I ended up at Danielle, who was born and raised in Lyon, yep. French restaurant, got there. I never intended to come to New York. My ex-girlfriend at the time convinced me to mm -hmm. come and left me a week before. I already had a job and a plane ticket, so I guess I just come. Mm -hmm. I walked in, I met Alex Lee, back then the executive chef, yep. and, and from there everything else made sense. I met Danielle, the team. Had amazing six years at Danielle. Wow. And who are you, who are you working with? I mean, this is a crazy time at, at Danielle. Uh, so Alex was his yep. last year at Danielle. Yep. Uh, people who know Alex Lee and really iconic figure in, in the culinary U.S. world. Uh, Danielle, um, uh, I'm trying to think, Johnny Uzzini was just leaving, I believe, mm -hmm. the pastry. Sandro Michelli, uh, then Dominique Ancel came yep. uh, through. So I've seen quite a few people who are now doing their own thing. Uh, Gail Siemens and I, I think, walked through the door the same day or one day apart from yep. each other. She was doing PR. I started cooking. But uh, she'd jump on the line sometimes, too, because Gail yeah. is a, a great chef. Absolutely. And and we still talk about we, we are good friends and yeah. we do some cooking events. So it's amazing. Danielle just celebrated their big anniversary and going there and seeing all the talent that came through that kitchen. It's remarkable. Uh, some people are still in the industry. Yeah. Some people are doing other things. Uh, Great school. I, I loved every second of it. Yeah. And then you decided at some point you were going to leave the restaurant world and open your own business. And La Boite has become um, a go-to, as I said, uh, f uh, spice purveyor for both retail and wholesale, correct? Yeah. Uh, so I started La Boite out of my apartment in the late 2006, 2007. Um, with, there was no real plan. The, the plan was to make food better, is how can we really enhance food? And the answer was spices mm -hmm. um, and slowly started building up this network of, of uh, partners and vendors and, and growers, uh, exciting 16 years of really changing the way people cook at home and on the restaurant front with La Boite. Uh, we, at La Boite, it's food first for us at La Boite. We, we think food and then we figure out a way on how to, mm -hmm. to make it better. Yeah, I mean, the spice business has become a huge business, especially with direct-to-consumer brands selling spices, se selling spice packs. But you were doing it 16 years ago. Um, 
when was the first time Zatar hit? I'm just like joking because like we talk about Zatar a lot on the show, but I feel like you probably were one of the first to sell Zatar in, in New York. There were a few items that I'm a, I'm a big um, advocate or ambassador: Zatar and Tahina and 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 Amba and all of the. And yeah. I, it finally, you know, you you go to I I don't know if a Seven Eleven at this point will have <laughs> Zatar, but they might. Uh, I think it took some time to change the perception of first of all ethnic food. Yeah, which wasn't a conversation when I started. So yeah, and and also just home cooking and emboldening chefs and home cooks alike to use um, the global pantry using mm-hmm. a bad cliche, but it's it's articulate. I think it's important to note that it wasn't always as easy to get good spice. No, it wasn't. I mean, the situation is, is much better today. Was but definitely was alarming in fine dining in people's homes. Uh, the lack of knowledge, you know, and and we talk about spices and ingredient at La Boite, uh, it's not an afterthought. Definitely. So the same way that you spend money and time on purchasing protein and produce, you should do the same. Big question here. The flavors of the Middle East, is, they're undeniable. Like on like in food culture, you're seeing um, pomegranate molasses like leak into like modern American bistros. You're seeing amba, you just referenced that, um, dipped, you're dipping like um, bar bites into amba. So let me ask you why is the Middle Eastern flavor profile so prominent right now? I think there's a couple of things. A, it's got flavor. It's full of flavor. There's a burst. And it's an interesting contrast in the Eastern Mediterranean or the Middle East, however you want to call it. It's a combination of very clean ingredients with a lot of flavor. And that, I think, is a great contrast. You can also claim that the ability, uh, that the fact that it's a vegetarian, vegan cuisine is very appealing. So you can bring a lot of umami, a lot of depth, a lot of savory to a pro- to a, a vegetable or a fruit. Uh, and I think people want flavor. I think that, you know, we are luckily at the point today where we're looking not necessarily for heat. And, and I love hot sauce, don't get me wrong. But we're looking for acid. We're looking for bitterness. We're looking for salinity. So I think that the Middle Eastern products and pantry items are there. Um, and, and it hits you right away. I think that's why they're so popular. Yeah. Really smart words there, articulate, because I think you're right. It is clean and it really works with the plant-based diet in a way that um, in certain other cultures, their animal products kind of leak in just by default. So well said. Let's talk about some specifics. I have a couple marked down. The way you write about spice too, I just love it. It's why I love this book so much. Um, Sumac, you're calling the Middle Eastern vinegar. I love that. (laughs) I've, I've over the year had to kind of figure out how to describe it to people. You know, when you say it's a berry, it's like, oh, I don't use berries. And when you say tart and acid, it was like, mm, that hmm. doesn't sound great. But vinegar, that's approachable. I think people understand vinegar or red wine vinegar or, or, you know, berry vinegar. And I think that's what it does. I think that's why it was created. You know, it's to bring acid into food in a dry form. So I, I think that's what's kind of our way of describing it. Really, really smart. And, and you know, the crimson hue of sumac when you get it fresh and you smell it. But then it has this, like, lightness to it and this, like, citrus. And this and so vinegar makes a lot of sense. How do you cook with it? Uh, I use it on a lot of things. Whether I don't cook at all, I just, you know, slice some onions and toss them in sumac and olive oil and done, done deal. There's yeah. a salad. Um, the beauty of sumac is that it holds its acidity and tartness even in roasting and cooking while lemon yeah. juice will just disappear. So just from a, you know, a roast chicken with yeah. sumac, uh, a fish, which is beautiful, just braised or oven baked with sumac. Yeah. Fantastic. I love roast chicken with sumac to your point. Gives 
beautiful color to a, a, a full, like a full bird, but also it doesn't, it's like lemon plus lemon plus lemon plus <laughs> lemon. It, it's got giving you all this lemon without it burning off. Correct. Yeah. Really well said. Um, let's talk about Duca. Um, it's been a favorite in our household. Um, I sometimes don't quite know how to use it. I, I put it on a lot of things, but I think you're more articulate than me. So how do you cook with Duca? Uh, Duca, the Middle Eastern uh, Egyptian spice blend, yep. where they're using walnuts or hazelnuts in the conversation. There's as many conversations as different varieties, maybe like cu- uh, curry, if you'd like. Um, anywhere from roasting vegetables, so not a whole lot, olive oil, Duca, yep. salt in the oven, great textures, uh, just plain yogurt with Duca as a dip or as a spread. Uh, salads are fantastic. Again, so many, and popcorn. I mean, yeah. who doesn't like a good Duca popcorn? It's a great popcorn, and, and I've definitely put it on popcorn myself. And I like two things you've mentioned. You've said raw onions with sumac and yogurt with duca. These are two items that maybe we don't think about on their own with, like, Western American cooking. But, like, an onion salad can be just beautiful, and it doesn't have to have the astringency. And then yogurt can be savory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we consume tremendous amount of yogurt and labneh at home. It's probably one of our – and so easy to use with, you know, either a duca or a sumac. and with Without even turning your stove on or your oven, mm-hmm. you can cook. That's, and I think that's part of a big thing that we do at Labuat is teaching people how to cook without cooking. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you think of it, it's just like raw ingredients with spice and there you go. Dinner served. Um, white coffee. I'd like to hear a little bit about that because I've never heard of it. But also, you know, beverage plus spice is something we don't necessarily think about right away. We obviously know chai, mm-hmm. South Asian spiced tea, but honestly, outside of that, it's less common. What is white coffee? You write about it beautifully. So white coffee could be two things. So if you go to Yemen, white coffee would be a blend of of green coffee beans, un, unroasted, untoasted, roasted, I guess is the term. Yeah. Um, traditionally with a little bit of corn in it to bring sweetness and then cardamom and ginger and cinnamon. And then uh, like a French press or steeped or, or boiled and then mm. drank. You can always also see the same uh, up north with just putting either an orange blossom into a water or a rose water and just calling it white coffee, yep. even though there's no coffee. It's just it. like an infused water with rose. But you're using like green beans. Hard to find in the States, but you can find it. Really interesting use of uh, use of coffee. It's a great ingredient. It's hard to grind. And so yeah. that's why it's They're hard as hell, man. Yeah. They're very hard, but, you know, you can even leave them whole and just steep them for longer and, and it will work. Or if your local coffee roaster doesn't mind taking the risk yeah. uh, of grinding them for you. And so it's a spectacular uh, result, either hot or cold, very energizing. So white coffee. So I would go to like my local cafe roaster and say, hey, guys, like, do you have like some green in the back and maybe buy a little? Is that what you're suggesting? yeah. yeah. And then you can grind them on your own or if yeah. they're willing to grind them for you, uh, it's fantastic. All right. Let's talk about za'atar a little bit. What am I not thinking about with za'atar? I feel like I have thought about it quite a bit, but you've got a whole bunch of ideas there in the book. I think the first and foremost, it's, it's an herb, you know. So the blend is made with an herb named za'atar. Now you'd find za'atar that's made with anything from oregano to rosemary and anything in between. Is it za'atar? It's like saying, does hummus by law needs to have tahina? I think it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to like be the police of it, but yeah, I agree. Like uh, tahina should be part of hummus. I yeah. agree with you. Both. By law. And then I'm the founder <laughs> of the, okay, that organization. You, you are the founder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very adamant about it. Um, You're judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. Uh, so Zatar leaves, which I love using just on their own. 
you know, yeah. instead of oregano or any type of dried herbs, sumac, you know, definitely a major component. Yep. Uh, unhold natural sesame. Yeah, of course. And then from that moment on, you want to go to the more uh, whole version, not ground. Great. There's some Jordanian or Lebanese or Syrian mm-hmm. where nothing's ground. It's pretty much whole except for the sumac. Some of them will be finer, but really that balance of acid from the sumac, earthiness and herbaceous from the za'atar, and then the, the nuttiness from the sesame. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I've, I've been to this great shop in this in the Shuk in, in Akko, and, and definitely they'll ask you how much sumac you want in your za'atar. And I love that you mentioned that because I think I'm more of a sumac-heavy mm-hmm. fan, but it's a preference, really. Yeah, and then people will tend to like, oh, it's not green enough. I happen to be colorblind, so con- ah. color is not part of my conversation. Cool. Uh, as long as the taste and smell are fantastic, the rest I don't really care, but I think, yeah. I have a few more questions about spice, but let's zoom out a bit. Are you going to origin yourself? Are you buying spice um, at the source? I try as much as I can. Sure. It's, uh, our industry is, is challenging like many other ones. Single source product is is very limited and it's hard to trace. Uh, you can buy Indian coriander that actually grew in Eastern Europe mm. but was processed in India. Thus, the label on the back would say Indian. It's very limited quantity. Uh, seasonality plays a big role. In our industry, again, like many others, there's a lot of adulteration. There's yeah. a lot of stamps put. You know, if you pay the right amount of money, you get the stamp put on it. So I'm very skeptical and hesitant about single source origin. We have a couple of handful of farmers where I visit the farm. We buy from them. Again, very limited quantities. Yeah. The, the high volume ingredients like cumin, fennel, coriander, paprika, they come from I wouldn't say thousands of farms, but easily hundreds of farms. I went to India three years ago. I've seen the reality out there. People are doing an amazing job, but there's just not enough on one farm to supply what we need. Yeah, and it kind of brings into focus the blending aspect. Obviously, we want to be careful and talk about farmers and really make sure we're giving them credit. But when it comes down to a spice blend, the blender, like yourself, is really making it happen. I think the farmer makes the job for us. So if of the course. product is great, then then it's great. I cannot. Right. I'm no, no magician. Right. But it happens that one of our blends would be bags from three different farms or three different vendors. My work, like a winemaker, let's put it that yeah. way, is to get you know grapes from different parcels on the plot and finding the right balance. It's never the same, but it's always natural. That's kind of how we approach it. Is it's never exactly like the last batch. Yeah, and it's like co- buying coffee, green coffee as well. And like if you're buying Ethiopian coffee, you're buying it from several small hold farms, like two to three acres each. Yeah. I'm sure it's similar with spice. All right, back to the list. Okay, Lior, gotta know, what is a caper? Just caper berries? Yeah, like you're getting the jar at the store and like, <laughs> I'm like, yo, I don't know what that is. So what is that? Uh, it's a beautiful plant that grows wild in, in the Middle East with this beautiful flo- uh, flower. And then it's the fruit of it uh, that's harvested kind of fresh. And then a couple of ways of preserving it, either in brine or in salt. Mm. Uh, some of them, like the Italian ones, will have they're very large with this long tail attached to them. Uh, and the the way, fancy ones. The fancy ones. <laughs> uh, I also like the tiny, tiny little ones yeah. that are in brine. Uh, so just, yeah, either brine or cured in salt. Uh, again, a great way to add salinity uh, without adding salt to a dish. So throwing a few capers into a preparation. Uh, I'm a big fan of not reaching out to your salt container or shaker right away. Fair taste, and then you see if you need some more. I like that. So thinking about the, the natural products and not just reaching for the diamond crystal. 
I'm, you know, I, I think that the phrase season to taste with salt and pepper should disappear from yeah. recipes. It should say season to taste with heat and salinity. And, and maybe you don't even need it because you already have enough ingredients in the recipe when you don't need that. Love that. I, I mean, I feel it's like a go-to. The default almost means nothing when you say season to taste. It's like, yeah, but yeah. like if you said season to taste with sumac. Yeah. Like add sumac and then keep incrementally adding it to season your dish. Yeah. I think there should be like a little checklist. Is it, there's enough heat? Is enough salinity? Is it sour? Is it hot? Is it bitter? And then you can adjust like, you know, like a little bit like in an audio studio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the, it. The bass tra- treble or whatever yeah. it is. No, it is a great, it's a great uh, cognate. I love that. And again, like when you think about the pantry section in most cookbooks, and I've written the pantry section in several cookbooks, such a snooze, very boring, very hard to make it interesting. You're making it interesting here. Thank you. I mean, it, it was fun. I learned a lot, I must say. A lot of what's in the book I didn't know. It was fascinating. That's why I'm so, I love this book so much because I've learned a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's, again, it's it's how it's made, where it's made, who makes it that really makes this connectivity with the ingredient. You take a yogurt stone, it's like, oh my God, there's so much mm-hmm. work that went into it. It's not like just a dry baseball of, of cheese or, or something. Yeah. How do you judge olive oil? So... Again, tricky one. I, uh, as a son of an olive oil maker, my dad makes. Uh, he has his own six, seven hundred trees in the north, northern so, Israel. Where in you're northern from. Israel. We haven't established from. that because your accent. You have more. You have a French accent too. I do speak fluent French and and Hebrew and English. Yeah. all day long. But I am from Israel, from the north, from the Galilee, Upper Eastern Galilee, as ah, they call it, up by Syria. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lebanon and Syria. So yep. you pick where you want to go. <laughs> yeah, I was just there in March up in the border. It's yeah. it's such, I mean, spectacular. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah, there's snow, which people don't know of. Yep. There's mountains, Mount Herman. snow, even ski. Yep. Um, so I love olive oils with lots of character, you know, very peppery, very herbaceous. I, I would enjoy even a mild one, but I need some punch in my olive oil. There's amazing olive oils, whether it's Israel, whether it's Spain, it's Italy, U.S., uh, there's a lot more awareness. I think that, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, olive oil was kind of like a novelty item. And now we're seeing uh, a new wave of oils to begin with, not just olive oils. And so I like them with a lot of character. I think the good ones last for quite some time. People have this tendency of like, oh, one year. Like, I, if they're done right, they will last two years easily. That's cool to hear. I think that's there's a little bit of like contradictory information out there. Some will say you have to use it right away within three months or you're done. But you're saying it does hold. As long as the acidity level is low yeah. and the lower, the better. And people don't mention that. I wish one day on packaging it would say low of, you know, how much acidity there is. I'm currently using my dad's oil from 2020, mm-hmm. uh, still spectacular. Uh, I just have a lot. <laughs> I think the one rule is that you uh, pour olive oil with the elbow up high. You cannot measure olive oil. It's, <laughs> it's got to flow. Uh, you can cook with it. You can yeah. sear with it. Also, misconception. Obviously, I wouldn't do deep frying in olive no, oil. No, it's hard to deep fry, but smoke points are, are higher than you would think. Correct. It doesn't burn as easily as you think. And... And you should pay good money for whatever olive oil yeah. that you're buying. Uh, know the source. Uh, the ingredient should be just olive in it, nothing else. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, hopefully. There's a lot, again, of adulteration with mixing oils mm. and 
Nothing wrong with a blended oil for high temperature cooking, and you know I've used it in. Oh, restaurants. blends are great. I mean, I think California Avalon Ranches throw out a, a brand. Their blends are great for everyday cooking. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's great. But yeah, do pick your grower uh, in the container, and and don't be shy. Your father has six hundred trees. My father grows olives and figs. Yeah. He makes a uh, bucha, which is a distilled uh, Tunisian beverage from mm-hmm. the figs, like an eau de vie. Oh, cool. uh, and then turns his olives into olive oil. Uh, it's called moshe oil. Has, Very, yeah. Has he has he had any die-off from the, 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 the... I was just in Puglia, in southern Puglia, and I, I was amongst groves, and there were... Half of them were healthy, but then there was so much die-off, and it was, like, very sad. It's... He's organic without the stamp, let's put it that way. So he's fanatic and he cuts the trees in a very special way that there's enough. Uh, Luckily, this year was good because it's organic and no treatment. You'd have the bug here and there and, you know, it's enough that there's a wave of wind or rain right before harvest and you lose a lot of it. He doesn't use anything that's on the ground and it's all really handpicked. So, you know, it takes forever, (laughs) uh, but the result is in the bottle. Did you help him with harvest? I, not this year. Last year, I went. You been and yeah, you helped yeah, him. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. I I love uh, I love olive oil for anywhere from anywhere. Yeah. It's, yeah. When it's good, it's good. Can we talk about the date shake? I just love that you've called out one of my favorite American foods dishes. Whatever the Palm Springs Indio date date shake. I went to Palm Springs. Oh gosh, probably 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, more than 10 because my son's 10. So <laughs> yeah. it was prior to that. But pre-kids, it was a little more. Pre-kids. Like, were you at Coachella? Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> cool enough, I think, to go to Coachella. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> that's fair. I just went on like a little trip there. Yeah. I loved the I loved the area. It was fascinating. Yeah. Palm Springs and, and the architecture and sure. the climate. And uh, and then I ended up in this place that made date shakes. I was like, wait, date shake in the middle of Was all it of Shields? This? It's possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I probably have a mug somewhere at sure. home. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, Dates are from my part of the world. It's like, no, 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 no. We have them here. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, kind of a fun fact, the California date industry pretty much saved the whole world. Because I wow. believe in the 40s or 50s, there was a big, or maybe even later, uh, dates around the world were dying. Morocco, the Middle East, and if it wasn't for uh, California dates, where farmers were able to send plants to replant in wow. all of these regions, the industry would have been uh, in really bad shape. A life without dates, I can't I imagine. I cannot imagine living without it's... dates and then, you know, doing using silan, which is date syrup, date molasses, however yeah. you want to call it. I use it in large amounts and the shape made total sense. I have to shout out, Soom makes a really nice salon. I like that product a lot and Absolutely. you probably sell it as yeah. well. Yeah, it's very, it's nice. So yeah, we think about pomegranate molasses mostly, and that leads to my next question, but, but Date syrup is amazing. So the whole notion of dibs, which the in in Arabic, which is molasses. Yeah. So there's dibs from grapes and from pomegranate and carob, which mm-hmm. has not made it yet to the U.S., but I think it's up and coming. Carob is a product. Yeah. Uh, it's reserved for the vegan industry. Yep. It's uh, like we think of it as like a chocolate alternative here. But just, I mean, we ate carob as kids, yep. just picking them up and drying them and eating them. It's a great source of fibers and sugars. But the carob molasses, uh, which is really savory and, and deep, and, and why use artificial sugar syrups where you can use natural ones? So the notion of uh, dibs, just really making molasses out of fruit or anything else. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful section in the book. And, and I have to ask you about pomegranate molasses because you, you have a recipe for the molasses lamb leg. And I have to just think like, you know, that's a Mike Solomonov kind of joint right there. I feel like a <laughs> friend of both of ours, and I feel like that he made it really popular as a hob in Philadelphia. But 
you can make your you can do you can put pomegranate on any meat cut, but I think a uh, a lamb leg is pretty great. Lamb is great. Beef is great. Um, as the founder of the Jews for Pork Association, uh, <laughs> ribs would do the trick. A pork shoulder that's slowly braised. Um, it's a great source. And again, just a, a little drizzle over your yogurt for breakfast. I pour some over tahina for breakfast and just eat it with bread. Uh, great source of, of, you know, not only sweetness, obviously, but also fruit and sour. Yeah. A good, a really good pomegranate molasses is is just perfect for both sweet and savory cooking. I love it. Yeah. yeah. We often forget about the last recipe that appears in a book. And I had to mention yours, which is salt cod and green olive stew. Appears on page 280. Let's give it the love it deserves. Huge fan of salt cod. Bacalao, whatever you want to call it. I uh, got exposed to it in France. As a child in the kibbutz, they made salt cod, but I have very bad memories from that. Where's experience. the cod coming from? Like like north northern Europe, probably? It came probably from either northern Europe or maybe from Spain, but the way it was prepared, thank you know, <laughs> God bless these they're probably all gone at this point. That the people who cooked at my kibbutz. The Mash the Mashallah kibbutz. The, the Ashkenazi uh cooks uh <laughs> yeah. that you know, were pretty angry people, I think, in that dining room. <laughs> I moved to France and discovered Brandad. Yeah. Uh, and discovered just, you know, uh, salt cod that was roasted or, or oven baked. I was like, oh, my God, this is such an incredible product. It's shelf-stable. So who doesn't love a good shelf-stable fish? Um, and so I was very excited to find it in the Middle Eastern cuisine. It's kind of a mashup of, of a few recipes that we find. I also love cooking with olives. I don't think, I think people don't use enough olives in cooking. Yeah. It's reserved for pizza. It's reserved for charcuterie board. Or yeah, snacks. little plates before the meal. Yeah. Braised olives. I mean, we also have a braised olives too in the book that's yeah. aside from that uh, fish. I, I love olives. So putting those together, you can make it with fresh cod. You can make it with any fish, yeah. but I think uh, salt cod and then soaking it in water for a few days and then cooking it, it's It's incredible. beautiful. Yeah, it, it's something that we just don't think about as much as like an American cooks because it's just not something we have a big abundance of because we have fresh or fresh frozen cod. Yeah, and it's available and oh, just yeah. about a matter of looking for it. What was food like growing up on the kibbutz? I mean, let me ask you about that. Like, you you, you moved to France. Your, your mind must have been blown. I mean, what were these communal meals like? So I loved the kibbutz. I had an amazing childhood. The food uh, in the dining hall, <laughs> some parts of it were actually amazing. There was um, some really fun stuff, but some stuff wasn't that great. The beauty of living in a kibbutz, especially in the north of Israel, uh, after school, I took my bike and with a bunch of friends, we went to the river next to our kibbutz and went fishing for trout, for rainbow trout, mm -hmm. start a fire and then cook trout over wildfire. Um, I was seven or eight year old. I had a horse. I went horseback riding, stop at the kibbutz next door and steal a watermelon or two and then bring them back. Uh, go and, you know, before uh, Scandinavian foraging was a thing, we went foraging as kids yeah. for berries and fruits and we knew where the trees were and, you know, what neighbor had the best figs or the best... Uh, you know, uh, guavas or apples and, you know, hoping we don't get caught by the neighbor or the yep. neighboring farm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the diversity of products in northern Israel in particular, I mean, it, you, like you could be in Bavaria, you could be in Colorado. I mean, you could be in a lot of different places. Yeah. And the, the cultures of Druze cuisine, Palestinian, yes. Christian, there's such great ethnicity. So we had the, the chance to travel quite a bit as kids. My dad was uh, stationed in a few countries. So I lived for a year in Rome. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then we lived in Brussels, where all of a sudden I saw non-kosher food. Can you imagine, yeah. uh, you know, coming from back then a pretty kosher country, eating mussels? Is and, that where the Jews for pork, um, you know, constituency? I think that's where started? it started without <laughs> putting a name on it. But you know, <laughs> eating pates and eating, and I was like, why are we deprived from these beautiful, you know, thing? Um, I have a good friend who thinks that that's the source of conflict in the Middle East is the fact that there's not enough pork and not enough alcohol. Uh, <laughs> well, well, that would be quite the conversation. Let's that's go a there. whole other conversation to sometime. be had. Um, <laughs> but I discovered, I think uh, I really, the, the notion of cooking and becoming a cook started kind of shaping up in, you know, I was eight, eight, nine, traveling in Europe and then coming back to Israel, amazing street food. And, and you could be on one block and eating Eastern European mixed with Moroccan and Iraqi and Bulgarian. And I think that's what makes current Israeli cuisine. It's, it's kind of a million dollar question. What is Israeli cuisine? Mm-hmm. I think it's that melting pot of influences and ethnicities with the products that are grown domestically. Uh, yeah, so fascinating childhood. Absolutely. And and I'd like to ask you about the cooking school that you're you're founding um, in Israel. You've been working on it for like five years. You're about to open next year in 2024. Sounds amazing. How can we, can we just sign up and attend and, and do classes there? So Galilee Culinary Institute, yeah. GCI for short. I partnered with an amazing organization called Jewish National Fund based in New York, but does amazing work in Israel. They're my business partners. Mm-hmm. Opening May of 2024, 12 months program in English. Uh, sign up is open, so people could uh, apply at GalileeCulinaryInstitute.com and uh, send their application. Mm-hmm. Uh, the program is fun. It's 12 months of a lot of experiences from winemaking, caviar making, cheese making, charcuterie. Our knife skill class actually starts at a knife maker. Mm-hmm. We're going to go and see how knives are being made before we're going to even chop one tomato. Yeah. We have a five-acre farm where students will grow most of the produce that's being used. We really want to talk about all the application of culinary, sure, cooking and baking, but also food journalism and writing and photography. Uh, people talk about farm to table. I want to talk about the table and how <laughs> a table is being made oh, and wow. what makes the difference between a round table to a square table. That's do pretty you need, cool. Do you need a Never table? heard that one. Do you need a tablecloth? Who? I, I, so we really want to push the envelope and, and have our students really explore everything, including, by the way, legal and, and, and finance and to give them tools to succeed in to the business. To succeed as a, as a restaurateur. Or, or if you choose to be a food photographer once you graduate, I'll be very excited. If you yeah. want to start your own podcast, if you want to go and work for a large food manufacturer in, in their lab as a food scientist, I'll, you want to be a food activist, I'll, no answer is a bad answer. Special want, place. Yeah, very special place. Do you offer financial aid at all? We do. That's yeah. great. So case per case, very open. We have a whole team and depending, it's open to students from all over the world. We currently have somebody from uh, Peru, mm-hmm. uh, Canada, the US, Israel, uh, the more the merrier. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read about online now we're talking about it, but it seems like it's a pioneering institute in Israel and it's going to be, you know, bringing together the products um, that we've just spoken about and can you imagine like going there and learning to cook with pomegranate molasses like in country? Pretty there's cool. There's now caviar and there's wasabi growing in the Golan Heights. There's a truffle farm, vanilla growing. I mean, it's it's mind blowing. The the food tech also in that region and in Israel. Yes. it's really really exceptional. Yeah, the vertical farming I saw in Tel Aviv, um, just a small fraction of it, but it's the tech is obviously world renowned. So. Um, on this estate, we ask guests about their discerning tastes. So, Lior, to close this interview, I want to give you a rapid-fire taste 
test. Okay. Taste check. It's gonna, I don't know. What, we're going to call it a test. We're going to call it a check. Let's start here. What is the best nut? Pistachio. Great. The most underrated New York City restaurant? Ouch. It's currently closed. Uh, hopefully, it'll open. It's called Taboon. Yeah. 10th and 52nd. Yeah, Taboon. Absolutely. It's closed Reopening now. this September, Great. I believe, or October. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? Oh, a vegetable peeler. Okay, so let me ask you that. Um, when should you throw it out? I feel like they're always dull in every kitchen I go to. I mine. I've had mine for years. Oh, yeah. Probably about the right one. <laughs> <laughs> Most overrated ingredient? Truffle. Yeah, yeah. Even on fries, which uh, I the, love. Then, yeah. Your favorite cookbook of all time? One single one. One choice. One book. Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh. I don't know that I have an answer for it's that. It's a really That's, hard one. I know. I know, because you're, like, diplomatic, but, like, okay, what is the last one you you pulled from, I'll say? Uh, I did the pizza dough from Roberta's. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book. I love that. What's the best cheese? Oh, Brie Savarin. Oh, and so it has to be French cheese. No, I love a lot of cheese, but that's my happy okay. place. The best fast food? Shawarma. Oh, yeah, totally. So you thought of it, like, to-go, takeaway. Do you have an American fast food favorite? Um, I guess burgers. Yeah. Any, like, chain you like? N- haven't found it yet. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I like that. I've spoken like a true chef. <laughs> Your favorite country to visit? Aside from Israel, I would imagine. Yeah, we'll say That's that. like going home. Fair enough. It's not home, but, like, another country. France. Yeah. Uh, kind of predicted that one. Okay, your late-night diner order? Uh, Probably... I don't know what I would late night down at. Like 2 a.m. post club. Bacon. A side of bacon. A side of bacon. A few sides of bacon. As an aside, were you a fan of Florent back in the day in the 90s? Never been. You never went to Florent back in the meatpacking district. That's, that's, yeah. Sadly. That's, you probably were working. Yeah. Um, your favorite sandwich in the entire world? Uh, And shawarma isn't the sandwich. I would say that is another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Or falafel. (laughs) We've definitely talked about the falafel is definitely not a sandwich. Interesting. I'd say falafel isn't there. I'll do a BLT. I know it sounds boring. No, it's not boring. That's a wonderful choice. Okay, your your favorite basic spice. I'm talking about McCormick. You're walking into the grocery store in in a random town, and, like, you've got your McCormick's there. Olbe. Yes. Why? I love Olbe. I mean, you know, uh, I, I never heard of Olbe until I moved to the U.S. 22 years ago. And people were, like, obsessing about it. And for, for a while, I was a bit of a snob. I was like, oh, what, <laughs> what's wrong with you people? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've just cooked crab with Olbe the other day. I went to my wife. like, really? You're going to buy Olbe? I was like, I am buying Olbe. I think that there, I have tremendous respect for the blend, for McCormick. Yeah. Uh, I think that. You know, when the occasion is right, that's that's what you need to do. And you on know? your palate, what's in the blend? Like, because you could probably decode it pretty easily. There's bay leaves in there and there's, you know, a nice amount of salt and garlic and onion. So yeah. it's, a, it's a good mix. Yep, yep. Favorite hard-to-find spice? Um, Sancho berries from Japan. Not so, so hard, but very small amounts. What does that do? It's a bit like... Um, I wouldn't say Szechuan because it also does that numbness, tingliness, but it's so floral and piney and, and beautiful. Like a little bit of it on a raw fish is just spectacular. Lior Lev Sarkars, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thanks for having me.
What's up, Eliza? You know, just want to talk cookbooks. Yeah, we are going to, like, address something that like, anyone working in food media really kind of grapples with. It's We're recording this in in kind of, like, it's, Ju- it's July 20th. We'll, like, just timestamp it. And if you work in uh, in our field, you get advances of cookbooks. You get PDFs. You get physical books. We also, of course, work at Crown Publishing and, and, and at Penguin Random House, so we're getting physical copies all the time as well. So we're already starting to see the fall season shape up. And I think it was something we, we've been talking in the office, but, like, let's get on mic and talk about some of the books that – these are like snap judgments. These are like our first impressions. I haven't cooked from any of these books, but I think the books that I'm going to mention are just ones that are just like started reading and just really enjoying. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I love to wildly speculate off vibes. I think it's a great place <laughs> to start. Yeah, so these are not formal reviews, but these are just kind of like the books we're kind of like liking right out the gate. And we'll, of course, have probably many of these authors on the show as we progress through the season. Um, what's your first book that kind of caught your caught your attention? My first book, shocking, is a baking book. It's Yasi Arafi's new book called Snacking Bakes, and she did a book called Snacking Cakes that came out a couple years ago that I really loved, um, despite my interest in talking about <laughs> dessert on the podcast and elsewhere. I'm not a big baker, and that book, Snacking Bakes, when it came out, I think it was during the early pandemic. Yeah. It was a lot of one bowl, like, no, I don't own a stand mixer. Like, I don't own an electric beater. And it was all things that I felt really comfortable making. And I think it kind of revived this interest in, oh, it's really nice to have something sweet lying around. So Snacking Bakes, which is the new version, yeah. is mm-hmm. cookies, not just cake, which yep. is the first one. And I'm just excited for that because I think it's going to enable me to maybe start baking again, especially going into the fall when it's not so insane to turn on the oven. Yeah. I love this book. Uh, I got a copy of it last week and I've been paging through it. And I agree, Yossi is, is a, a real singular voice and has a really great sense of both photography. Uh, she re- she shoots all of her, her own books. So she's doing both the writing development and photography. Kudos there. And I just think it's a very accessible book. Love For it. sure. What's, what's your first one? My first one is um, Make It Japanese by Rie McClenny. I wanted to talk about this one, too. You did? Oh, okay. <laughs> but tell me what we you bo- like we about both, it. We both are we're both raving early. I mean, okay, first off, this book... So Rie is a, a recipe developer on on video personality from BuzzFeed, um, as well as, uh, you know, just on the internet in general, kind of an internet voice. Um, this book is giving lots of Japanese soul food energy, which was a, a book I still adore from 10 speed i think it came out in like 2013 and this is such a compliment i hope it comes off as because it is she's covering the japanese canon but through her own point of view using many products that are found very commonly in america and the package that meaning the trim and the paper quality just feels it's so inviting i love this book yeah, and I also want to shout out my friend Sanaya Lamwan, which is co-writing the book. And I've been talking to Sanaya; she's been going through the recipe, like editing and cross-testing process. And every recipe she tells me about just sounds so good. So I think, like, off of that alone, I'm just excited to get to cook from it myself. Yeah, I mean, some of the recipes that really popped were Tim. For me, uh, there was a, a butter corn rice. It was like a fried rice with really simple preparation, but just it looked really inviting. Um, a sumac. Onigiri, a sumac onigiri. I've never seen that before. No, I like that idea, though. Really smart. And then there's a, a whole section of sushi balls, which is like a version of like a, a rice ball, but wrapped. And uh, Rie does prosciutto and basil. 
and like gives us permission to go in that direction. Fuck yeah, I love this. I like that. What's your second book? My second book that I'm really excited about is My Everyday Lagos by Yawande Komalafe, who is a staff writer at The Times, among all of her other food accolades. I just love cooking all of her recipes when I see them online. And I think that um, this book just seems delicious. Like you, the cover is so beautiful and draws oh, yeah. me in. It's an illustrated cover and of it's a portrait of Yawande. And then you open the book and then there's this Photo- beautiful photo po- portrait of her, which I think is just so fun and special. And the, I think the recipes sound really good. I really um, like some of these like fried sweet plantains that are coated in like this spice mixture. Cause I love plantains so much. She has like an obayata stew, which is so classic and like not something that I've ever made myself at home. So I just think that it's a book I can really like sit down with and work through. Yeah, the recipe development is like super on point with this book. And Yuende is somebody I've admired from afar from the times. And, and I think the way this book is being positioned as like everyday cooking, which I think is so needed and the execution was just phenomenal. And I love that illustrated cover. It's going to make a lot of preview lists. I'm sure you're endless. It's, it's a beautiful package. And I just, I love the spirit and those dishes do sound great. Yeah. Okay. What's next on your list? We've been kind of like joking in a good way in the office about this book, um, the diner book, <laughs> um, because there's like 50 photos pages of photos, not 50 photos, 50 pages of photos to open the book. Matt, I think it's like 100 photos because I I was looking through it yesterday. It's all photos. It's a lot of photos, but it's not all photos. No, it's not. So to to back up, uh, Andrew Tarlow's restaurant um, in Brooklyn called Diner opened in 1998. It was an an era of of Williamsburg that we often forget. Many didn't even live in New York at that time. And and I think this, this the restaurant has endured and this is the tribute cookbook and it's being done in a way that I feel very connected to because I love reportage photography. I love photography that brings place to the reader. doesn't necessarily show you exactly how to make something, but it just gives you a vibe and a tone. And the fact that this book opens with a hundred pages of, of photos is brave and bold. And the photos are great though. Like if the photos didn't hold up, they wouldn't have done it. But yes, I love this book. And then, of course, at the end, there are recipes. Um, There are thoughts about the burger. There's thoughts about the style of restaurant. It's really cool. Yeah, I'm excited for this book, too. Diner is one of the first restaurants that I went to when I moved to New York. And I remember having such a singular experience sitting down, not knowing that they were about to write the whole menu on the (laughs) table in front of me and just losing my mind over that. And I think it's a style of food that... I tend towards cooking a lot at home, so I think it'll be a really, like, natural fit on my... Yeah. It, it's it's also this restaurant that you've seen, like, lots of movies, and you've seen lots of, like, pop culture references to, to North Brooklyn. Yeah. Because it's been around for forever. I think the James Murphy documentary is, is shot there, a lot of it, and, and just one of many instances. And, like, this restaurant is super important to, like, the history of North Brooklyn. It's not just, like, the pop culture history, but, like, the real restaurant history. And it, it's cool that it gets its own tribute. For sure. What's your uh, what's your third book? Well, speaking of New York City restaurants that I love, I'm really excited for Simply West African, which is Pierre Tiam's book that's coming out. He does Taranga up in Harlem, which if I'm up in that neighborhood, I'm always trying to go there to get one of their kind of fonio grain bowls and mm-hmm. go eat it in the park. I just think it's so fresh and another style of food that I really gravitate towards. And I don't cook a lot of West African food at home, so I really trust Pierre because he's such an expert um, in Senegalese food and beyond. So I think... 
it'll be just be a fun one. Yeah, I've I've really admired his cooking for a while, and I, I think this is uh, just the package alone to me has felt. Um, it's really breaking through and, and going to be an exciting book for the fall. For sure. Yeah, I love I love that you called that one out. And um, it's hard just going through this list. I, I have so many books in my in my brain, in my universe. And I think we'll probably come back and do this in a couple more weeks. We'll have another, like, fall preview, review, n- uh, vibes conversation. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to try to be cooking my way through a lot of these this fall. So maybe we can come back and talk about the recipes that we've made that have stood oh, out yeah. to us. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's actually do some cooking. Yeah. Cool. Um, I have a couple more. Um, the first is the book of Sichuan Chili Crisp from Jingao, who uh, many know as the founder of Fly by Jing, which is uh, definitely my my favorite Chili Crisp brand and a real force in CPG. Um, but this is Jing's debut cookbook, and it's cool. There are some great recipes in it, and it, it doesn't necessarily have, like, the Fly by Jing branding in it. It's more about the, the food of, of Jing's home, of, of Sichuan, and... I, I just love that there's a chili paneer in there. There's, uh, of course, bang bang noodles. And, uh, you know, it uh, it takes, like, Szechuan food, I feel, gets put into, like, a, a very small box. And I think this is trying to expand outside of what we know about Szechuan cuisine. And, and really, I love it. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I think um, also James Park has a Chili Crisp cookbook coming out. So it's a big banner year for spicy people. I was going to mention James E. Park. James Park is doing a book with Chronicle called, I think it's called Chili Crisp. I think so. I think it's what's called. Um, so yeah, big fall for Chili Crisp and and rightly so. It's it's certainly been a, a, a something that we've cooked more with than ever before. And I, I just love it. Yeah. And what I like about James's book is that he has different kinds of chili crisp recipes and one of them is a sweet chili crisp because he was talking about how he loved the idea of putting chili crisp on ice cream like vanilla ice cream but you know some base recipes have garlic or things that are maybe a little too savory for a dessert application so I think endorsing the idea of making us like a sweet or at least a more neutrally flavored chili crisp that you can put over sweet things really spoke to me as someone that like I have tahini in my bag right now just (laughs) in case I buy watermelon from a bodega later yeah it's it's a really good call um, it's one of our our top uh, condiments ingredients. Um, I have one more book. It's not a cookbook. It's it's more of a, a memoir nonfiction. And I, I really I got a, an early read of it, and I I finished it in a weekend. Wow. Um, which um, I you know I, I'll crush a book like every once a month. I'll do that weekend read, but it's really hard right now to like crush a book. Yeah. Do you find that yourself? Are, are you are you crushing books? I mean, you're a big reader as well. Yeah. I mean, I like try to go to the beach as often as I possibly nice. can, which I live off the A train. So it's pretty easy for me to do that. So I read a lot in the summer because I'm just like, I'll go by myself if I have like an afternoon off. If I'm ever not responding to you on Slack, that's probably what I'm doing. I love it. <laughs> I, I bless you for doing that. Please continue to ignore Slack, uh, especially um, if the sun is out. Uh, this book is called Upstairs Delicatessen. It's by Dwight Garner, who is the longtime book critic at the New York Times. He was formerly an editor there. Um, I don't, I've never met Dwight. I, I hope Dwight will join me in the studio for a conversation about this book. It is really special. Um, he is doing something that is very difficult. It is he is it is a memoir. It is his life, but it's woven and and told through the 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 fiction and nonfiction that he's read through his life. Um, so he is basically, name dropping a bunch of books that he loves in a way that isn't annoying and, and pretentious. Wow. And where does the delicatessen come in? Well, I think the upstairs delicatessen is like a it's a reference slash a metaphor. It's like the brain is the upstairs delicatessen, I guess is like upstairs. Whoa. Yeah, like, <laughs> whoa. Like, I think that's that was my takeaway. I can't remember. I'll, I'll have a more pointed conversation with Dwight. But he, 
he he brings up through the literature of his life and the writing of his life, he brings up a lot of questions. Like, why does Dwight love stale cake so much? Why is the mac and cheese reference in the novelization version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so perfect? What are the 400 cookbooks in his storage locker? He's got 400 cookbooks in his storage locker. I basically started writing down all the questions I'm going to ask him. I'm like previewing them right here. Did LBJ really have a fresca button? <laughs> he really like like this is like stuff that he's like dropping in. Is the PB and pickle sandwich really the best sandwich of all time? Whoa. Okay, I'm excited to hear the answers. He 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 weaves like some of his favorites include Nicholson Baker, David Starris, Cormac McCarthy, Sigrid Nunez. It's it's a real tour de force. This this. The, the process to write this memoir is 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 like a really a really curious topic for me. Um, I mean, he may have just done like a, a, a search of all the reviews he's been writing for the past thirty years and found every food reference and cross referenced them, or he's been taking notes in his brain in the upstairs delicatessen for the past forty years of all the food references in literature, and he synthesizes them in a really authentic way. I'm really excited about that. And while we're talking about non-cookbook food books coming out this fall, I just want to quickly shout out Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Zhang, which is a novel that I just devoured, loved, and I'm really excited to have her on the podcast and talk about it. The premise in brief is it's the future, but not too far away. A giant proto-dust bowl has wiped out basically all produce, and a young chef decides to go cook for a private research institute because they have access to all of the foods that no one else has access to anymore. So she like ascends to the mountaintop to cook for these elite people. But of course, everything is not, not what as it seems. seems. Da, yeah. Da, da. Da, da, da. Yeah. I can't wait for you to have that conversation and have that on the show. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be real nerdy and I'm really excited about it. This fall is really shaping up. It, it's I, I feel such optimism in the halls of Penguin Random House. I, I, I'm not bullshitting. It's, it's so cool to see the labor, the three to ten years that have, many of these authors have put into these books and really um, to see them all like land on a desk in a thud is, uh, it's not a thud, it's actually like a like sound that makes me, it makes my heart sing, that sound. We'll do ASMR with it another time. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your picks. Anytime. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 